Welcome to Earth Matters, environmental justice stories from Australia and around the world. Brought to you from the studios of 3CR on Wurundjeri country in Melbourne and broadcast across this continent via the Community Radio Network. I'm Elsie Kennedy. Western Sydney is a place where in summer, if you can afford it, you go from your air-conditioned house into your air-conditioned car and spend the day in your air-conditioned office. In this episode, we're going to be talking about heat and how climate change, combined with poor urban design, is making Sydney's poorest suburbs practically unlivable. Not at some distant future time, but now, already. If you don't know Western Sydney, picture sprawling flat plains and grasslands with the foothills of the Blue Mountains in the distance. Then imagine hundreds of thousands of kilometres of asphalt roads and densely packed houses plonked on top of it all and temperatures so hot in the summer that everything shimmers and the asphalt starts to melt and go sticky. Western Sydney is traditionally working class and has a high migrant population. It's where I went to high school and the makeup of my school with around 50% students from non-English speaking backgrounds is typical for Western Sydney. It's where people go to buy property when they've been priced out of every other area in Sydney and its current population of 2.3 million is growing really fast. At my public high school, we did walkathons every year to raise money to install air conditioning in the buildings. But in the 15 years since I finished high school, the summer temperatures have only gotten hotter and hotter. This episode, I'm speaking to Sebastian Fouch, an urban heat researcher from Western Sydney University, who does the opposite of what most normal human beings do on a hot summer's day in Sydney. He goes to some of the hottest places he can find, like car parks and suburban streets, and sets up an infrared camera. I started off by asking him about one of the images he took in the summer of 2019-2020, in a car park not far from where I went to school. I'm having a bit of a look at the moment at a photograph from your research, which is a photograph of of a car park, but it is, the ground is red, the cars are, you know, a mixture of sort of reddy, greeny colours. Can you, can you explain what's going on in these images? So uh, you would find when you look up my name and my research, a lot of those images, because I'm using infrared thermography a lot to produce visuals that are relatively easy to understand when we talk about urban heat. And the specific image that you just mentioned is from the Panthers car park in Penrith. <laughs> yes. So, so where I have my Utah formal. Yeah. <laughs> there you very, go. very atmospheric. Yeah. Very atmospheric. Mulgoa Road is a is 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 a heaven for unshaded black flat at great asphalt car parks. We have measured across Greater Western Sydney that in total in Greater Western Sydney we have about six square kilometers of these types of car parks. And they are of course extreme heat sinks. Um, the image itself depicts surface temperatures and gives it a color. You can see if that, if that image is scaled, you should see on the right hand side, uh, a color bar. And then according to the color at the bottom and the top, a degree Celsius indicator that shows you that the surface of this car park is close to 60 degrees. Mm, that's so, incredible. So, so, so the bar. And, and this is not. At, this is not the hottest. 
this is by far not the hottest. So this was a I'm just going to step back for a minute here because it's slightly confusing. On the day that Sebastian took this image, he says the official temperature, according to the Bureau of Meteorology, was around 30 degrees. The temperature he recorded coming off the asphalt of the car park was around 60 degrees. And he says the temperature in the car park was what he calls a feels-like temperature that was between 40 and 45 degrees. The reason that he goes out with his infrared camera and takes his own measurements is because he says the temperatures in built-up areas are actually really different to the Bureau of Meteorology readings. I asked him how many days a year temperatures in Western Sydney are hitting over 35 degrees Celsius, and his answer really surprised me. He says that even though the number of days recorded by the Bureau of Meteorology are at record high levels, the number of days that people are experiencing on the streets of Western Sydney are actually even more than that. My own research, where I don't rely so much on the Bureau of Meteorology weather station, which shows us something like 15 days, I'm getting close to 40 days already because I'm in the urban, in the built environment and not have the requirements around these weather stations to have, you know, 50 meter clearing, no buildings, no roads next to the weather station, because these weather stations are not made to observe urban climate. They're observed to, uh, they're, they're made to observe synoptic climate, large scale climate. Um, so I'm just taking my research right to where the people are living. And this is where I find these temperatures. Mm. I had in Campbelltown, which is down Southwest, um, I had one day above 40 degrees of the original um, weather station from the Bureau. And my own data had, I think, 12 days above 40 degrees. This so is it, last in 2019? That was 2018-19. Um, the study with Penrith was 2019-20, where I measured above 50 degree temperatures at six different locations. So it, it wasn't a, an instrument failure. It really was a systematic indicator for extreme and, and very dangerous conditions. Mm. Just to backtrack a tiny bit here, I asked Sebastian to summarise what the official data is telling us. What, now, what, what do we know about climate change in Western Sydney? So we can see just from the long-term data that we have available for those areas that the number of days of hot and extreme heat are increasing. The, the, the trend is very clear. Uh, the last 10 hottest years all have happened in the last 15 years. And because we, we know any of the models that we have available for climate change, um, any of these models is actually pointing towards more heat. We have not a single model that says we will have stable conditions from now on or even cooling conditions. There is no such thing available. Okay, so I think we all know from our own experience that places like car parks are hot. But are they really that much hotter than, than a park? I asked Sebastian about this and he goes back to that original image from the car park at Penrith Panthers on Mulgoa Road. He says there's another image that matches it that was taken on the same day. There are two pictures that basically demonstrate what happens when we move from the river and the park right next to the river, where we have grassy surfaces that are shaded by trees and we have slightly lower air temperatures because we get some cooling from the river itself. 
and we move into built-up environment. And there's a, there's a distance as the crow flies of about three, 2.4, three kilometers between the two points. And it's about the same time in the early afternoon or around noon where air temperatures were somewhat 30 degrees or 32 degrees. The important difference is that because of the types of surfaces at those two spaces, one relatively natural and with a large water body behind it, the other one completely um, modified to our urban needs, just the radiant heat of these two different surface types create what we call a feels-like temperature that is many, many, many degrees different. So you would feel, because of the radiant heat load that comes off to a very small degree from um, your grassy areas in the reserve next to the river, you feel much cooler. Whereas you go to that car park and the heat stored in the car park itself will make you feel much hotter. So it's not just the direct solar radiation that you get, the feeling of air temperature around you and wind speed that helps you cool down, but it's the radiant heat that comes off from this unshaded asphalt. Sebastian's research divides areas up into what he calls greenfield and greyfield. And he says the temperatures between these different kinds of environments are really very different. Greenfield means you have mostly a surface that is vegetated, it's open, it is uh, therefore pervious, rainwater can soak into it, and mm -hmm. vegetation helps cooling um, through, through just reflecting um, by shading if you have trees, and also by evaporating or evaporative cooling through mm -hmm. the transfer of um, liquid water to vaporous water at the leaf level. So that really helps keep areas cool. Now you take that away and you do one of the most brutal conversions that, or, or impacts that we men, um, not men, male and female, but men has on the planet, which is capping soil, where we basically close up the open pervious surface with impervious materials. And that can be a driveway or a street or an intersection or a house. These then become not open surfaces anymore, but they are with whatever material you take from bricks to concrete to asphalt. These are areas that are then covered with hard materials that are mostly impervious and they don't allow water anymore to seep into the ground. And the thermal mass of these um, surfaces is now different to what we had before, where you had a lot of um, reflectance within vegetation. Vegetation is good to reflect light, but um, um, it also is very good but not storing heat. Whereas concrete and asphalt is very good with storing heat, particularly when you don't shade it. So now we have this fast conversion of greenfield to greyfield. I hope that th those two terms are clear now. So when we have greyfield, we change thermal mass that sits within the landscape while, while at the same time we are taking away vegetation. So we're not getting the cooling from the vegetation anymore and we are providing surfaces that will store much more heat and that leads to general heating. We see most of this effect panning out during the night when the so-called urban heat island effect is most prominent and that means the temperature difference of surfaces or even of air temperature is much greater in built-up environment than in a reference site where you only have vegetation. Mm. 
most of the the other areas are cooling down quite fast, but the urban areas are holding the heat. Correct. That's that's this urban heat island effect where you just have so much stored energy that even when the sun is gone and you're not adding anything, you just get so much more radiative energy out of this environment that air temperatures and surface temperatures generally stay stay higher throughout the night. And that, of course, becomes problematic when we look at extreme heat events. And that could be single days. It could be heat waves. because we know that from hospital at people presenting themselves to hospital, the numbers go up when we have hot nights. And when particularly when we have two or three hot nights in a row, we see an exponential increase in admissions to hospital for morbidity and mortality rates generally related to heat. This is really, this is when it hits us because the body cannot recover from this extreme heat during the day to get ready for the next day. And if you have that in two or three days in a sequence, then your body really starts to give up. And we see particularly um, the elderly being very, very negatively affected during those times of extreme heat. Sebastian says something a lot of people don't realise is that people are affected differently by heat. And the consequences for some people, particularly children, can be really very serious. The centre of body mass of children is much closer to the surface. That's just by logic because they're shorter. Um, They are experiencing this heat more intense. So as you get closer to this surface, you you will capture more and more of this radiant heat and feel the effect of it much more. I, these days, sometimes I'm on talkback radio and people call in and say, oh, what about my dog? And of course a dog, is even closer to the surface and walks um, well with well padded feet, but it walks very, very close to hot surfaces in summer. And therefore often dog owners don't even think about that is the, the, the animal is exposed to much more radiant heat load walking so close to the surface. So it's really something that we see in car parks, we see it in playgrounds. Um, we see it in the play spaces of early learning centers and schools where you mostly deal with short people because they're young. Kids don't sweat. And therefore their capacity to regulate body or core temperature of the body is much, much less because the only mechanism that they can use is convective heat loss. That means you need a temperature difference between your body and the outside world so you can actually convect that. But if it's, you know, outside 37 degrees and in your body 37 degrees, it's very hard to convect any heat. So Mm. it's very hard in these high temperature environments, including, for example, on a car park for kids to regulate their core temperature, which means they are much more at danger to experience heat stress and in extreme cases, um, heat stroke, collapse and so on. Sebastian says we also have to remember, particularly in a place like Western Sydney, that people with less money have less ability to protect themselves from heat. Elsa, it's a complex issue. Once you start looking at heat, you're very quickly getting to public health, um, transport, uh, education, um, equity, really big questions. Um, So it's not just switching air conditioning on. And then we, we should not forget a lot of people out West may rent, And they have air conditioning, but they can't afford to switch it on. So Mm. we shouldn't leave those people alone. And then the argument that people, you know, when you when you have a heat wave and you don't have aircon at home, just go to the shopping center and cool down there. I mean, do that as a young mom with three kids and no disposable income. 
how much fun is that to hang out in a shopping center where you have three kids, you see all these things around you and you can't buy anything. And then you have to keep your kids happy to sit out in the shopping center to wait until in the evening, the temperatures are cooler again and you can go home and be relatively comfortable. That mm. is not a solution. So we have to be fair and realistic about these things. There, there are people with illnesses um, that cannot cope with heat. And when we have heat coming on in Western Sydney, just when we had this first heat wave at the end of November, we already had the energy, uh, energy suppliers talking about the collapse of the system. Now, these people have three air conditioning systems to have backup if an air conditioning system fails. But if they have no power, they, can, they cannot run any of those three um, uh, backup systems or, or, or air conditioning systems to help them to stay cool because of their medical condition. They are at real risk. Um, we, we, we can't just, you know, um, say, okay, let's just put more air conditioning in or uh, try to improve the, the energy grid so that we can supply during peak demand. We really have to address the problem itself, which is, as I said, decarbonizing the economy. We have to work towards a green economy. That's Western Sydney University urban heat researcher Sebastian Fouch. You're listening to Earth Matters on the Community Radio Network. Today we're talking about how climate change and the poorly designed suburban sprawl of Western Sydney are combining to create temperatures that are practically unlivable. Next up, Sebastian Fouch talks about how the design of Western Sydney needs to change. Okay, and so zooming out a little bit, if we look at Sydney from, you know, a map of Sydney or looking at Sydney from the air, it's sort of squashed up against the coast, so it can't really expand anymore to the east, and it is growing really fast. So, so these developed areas are are spreading, and they're, they're spreading quite fast. Um, can you tell me a little bit about those new developments that are that are coming up in Western Sydney? So, specifically, Western Sydney, I think, for any developed country, is an area that is that is just a unique playground for someone like myself working on on urban heat because the transformation the speed of transformation from what we call greenfield to greyfield is phenomenal we don't see that in any other urban or metropolitan core i can show that only a, a, a built-up area where you have 66 percent open space and 33 percent built-up space that will help us to at least not increase the temperature. But, but what we're building is about 80% built up space and maybe 20% left open space. And then that open space is sometimes not even green anymore. It's just some, you know, some bare soil and other things that we see during summer where people don't have green cover and particularly not larger shading trees. One of the things that I keep saying is we should not build thin and wide, but we should build up and dense. Our consumption of land is, is phenomenal compared to any other country when you look at city developments. And this brings us to the point of Sebastian's research, which is that we need to be designing our cities differently so that we're not increasing the already increasing temperatures that are around us. What we're building now, as I said before, will be there for 40 to 60 years. We're building it in a way that not only makes, um, 
neg or has negative impacts on the building environment inside. So not well insulated, single glazing, the wrong colors of the roofs, black roofs, um, sometimes black cladding even on the house walls, and then no space left to put trees in. So they can't, they can't even in the future can't be shaded because you have no space left to actually grow a tree. In some places, I even find that people cover their backyards with AstroTurf because they don't want to have any work or maintenance. And AstroTurf is one of the materials that I find is the worst when it comes to heat. It stores it and re-radiates it. I get surface temperature on AstroTurf during very hot days of nearly 100 degrees Celsius. And on rubber, I measured my, my current standing record temperature is 108.2 degrees Celsius on black rubber material in an exercise um, playground for adults, you know, where you have these exercise things outdoors. But they put black rubber in there. I couldn't, I couldn't believe it. But that's the reality. We, we, we're building the places in a way that locks us in really into, into dramatic um, and not very pleasant environments that are dramatic mm. dangers and not very pleasant environments because it's just, it's the complete wrong approach. And as I said before, the, the much better approach would be to build up and dense where we put 3,000 or 4,000 people into a settlement of very high apartment blocks, 10, 15, 20 stories, built them from intelligent materials like cross-laminated timber, having them arranged strategically so they can shade each other, um, and mm. then leave the remaining space open. Don't convert greenfield into greyfield, but have massive parklands, have you know communal areas for barbecues and picnics, have lakes, have creeks that all help cooling. Don't just build up everything in the way that we're doing, where you use up the whole space and you leave nothing. There's no community, there's no green, there's only heat. We have to change that. Sebastian says the geography of Western Sydney is really quite unique, which makes it even more important that we design what we build on this area really carefully to cope with heat. Well, when you, when you really look at the geomorphology of the Sydney Basin, then Western Sydney has a few, um, I don't want to call them negatives on its side, but a few um, prerequisites that make it, even without climate change, make it a hotter place. First of all, you have basically a landscape that from the ridgeline that you see somewhere between Campbelltown and Hornsby into the Hills Shire, there's a ridgeline that already acts as a barrier of the hot air getting blown out towards the east when you have the, the westerly winds. Now, you also have um, the heat basically sitting in a pan that's why Penrith and the area around, or the area between Penrith, Blacktown and Windsor is generally the hottest area. And that's because it's really sitting in this depression. The hot air is just sitting in there and getting hotter and hotter. And of course, with all the buildings that we have in the east, we are not allowing the sea breeze to penetrate far enough um, into the west. And therefore, the west never really benefits from the sea breeze. Uh, it, it basically stops somewhere at about Olympic Park that's about as far as it would creep up the river, the Parramatta River, to actually provide some kind of cooling. After that, it's just from all these buildings that we have in its way and their radiant heat uh, working against any cooling, it just, it just can't get any further. 
Over the last few years, the New South Wales government has provided funding to plant trees across Western Sydney. But Sebastian says the problem is much more complicated than that. I have to expect, uh, accept that the capacity of trees to provide cooling at the scale where we require it is not enough. Trees will, will not deliver everything we need. Um, so just having, you know, million dollar or even five, uh, sorry, million tree or five million tree programs as we now have here for Greater Sydney, um, it will not do the trick to really keep temperatures down. It will help. Every tree helps. Unfortunately, we still have a net canopy loss because we're losing many more mature trees and now replanting very young trees that need 20 or 30 or 40 years to get any meaningful shade from these trees. At the same time, Sebastian says planting more trees is one of the best options we've got to try to limit heat increases. At a local level, we have no means to reduce climate warming um, other than trying to keep cool by, for example, shading more and more surfaces by trees so that once we get into nighttime, we get into nighttime with cooler surface temperatures and less radiated heat. Sebastian says another thing that we really urgently need to do is radically alter building designs in Western Sydney. It's, it's going in circles where we need to break the chain. And if you start building heat smart apartment blocks, you don't need to air conditioning the way that we're doing air conditioning now. Thermal mass works different in those buildings. Um, cooling works different in those buildings. There are some very, very nice examples um, how people build fantastic spaces underground, or uh, when you look it up, there's um, the addition from the, the latest addition from the Shangi Airport, Jewel, a building that has no side windows, uh, but a massive dome where you have a free-falling water vortex, the highest indoor waterfall in the world. Look it up. It's a beautiful building. Mm. You could take this building and build it into the ground. This is the type of architecture I would like to see in Western Sydney. So it becomes this wow factor that, wow, you're living in Western Sydney. Aren't you lucky? Instead of what we have these days where you, where you, get, where you get pity. If you live in Western Sydney, people go, oh, okay, that's hot, isn't it? So we need to change that. If we want to see the predictions for Western Sydney being fulfilled, where we have a new airport and in the, in the coming decades, several hundreds of thousands of uh, new residents, we have to provide them with a living environment that they're proud of to live in instead of basically being pushed out West because there was no other space to go and they couldn't afford the other space. And they're basically left in this hothouse. That was Western Sydney urban heat researcher Sebastian Fouch. You've been listening to Earth Matters, Community Radio's National Environmental Justice Program. I'm Elsie Kennedy. If you missed any of today's show, you can find our podcasts at 3cr.org.au forward slash earthmatters. Or if you're listening via iTunes or any other podcasting service, please rate us and leave us a review. It helps other people find the show. Earth Matters would like to thank the Community Broadcasting Foundation for their financial support and the Community Radio Network for getting this program out to you. This program of Earth Matters was produced on Wurundjeri Country. If you'd like to get in contact, you can send us an email at earthmatters3cr at gmail.com or go to our Facebook page. I hope you can tune in next time for more Earth Matters. Thank you.